Welcome back to Psychic Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. As always, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so appreciative to have you guys listening all over the world, Italy, Sweden, New Zealand. You're still hanging in there. I appreciate you guys so much. I'm always so excited to see that I have listeners all over the world. I never can believe that I have you guys um, all over the world listening to me. So I greatly appreciate it. We have new merch up. Um, I have new designs, designs for Juneteenth, but especially I have design for the Don't Say Gay Bill. Um, That uh, portion, half of all of the profits from the apparel is going to go to the ACLU of Florida. For those of you who are not from the United States, there is a horrible legislation that went through. They are not allowed to mention any type of LGBTQ+, gay, nothing. It's like they're trying to erase um, people from the LGBTQ plus community in its entirety. So if you are a teacher and a child asks you about your partner or your life, you just can't talk about it. I I really don't know how they're going to do that. They're going to say, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you about it. Like it's, it's ridiculous. It's insane. Basically they're going back to the days of don't ask, don't tell with the military, but in schools, it's ridiculous. It's horrible. So if you uh, head over to the website, it's the Crime Scandal Store in Design by Humans. And uh, it's very, very obvious to spot it. It's got hands all in with the rainbow flag colors and just says gay all over it. So you don't have to say it. Your shirt says it for you. Uh, you can get it in a unisex shirt. We have it in women's, juniors. Uh, You can get it in tank tops, you can get it in hoodies, you can get it in sweatshirts, uh, any kind of apparel. You can also get any of the designs you can get in, not just apparel, water bottles, glasses, you can get them in mugs, you can get them in stickers, you can get them in posters, you can get them in uh, mouse pads, you name it, you can get it that way. Uh, There is international shipping to everywhere in the world. I was thinking of you guys when I chose to go with Design by Humans because I wanted to ensure that those of you who support me in other countries besides the United States would be able to show your support and love if you wanted to rock some merch. So if you want to um, help try and put an end to this Don't Say Gay bill, if you want to help the ACLU be able to combat it, and take them to court, uh, please grab one of those uh, shirts uh, or hoodies, tank tops, whatever, so that we can throw that money over to the ACLU and they can try and strike this legislation down. Also, we have some Juneteenth designs up. For those of you who don't know what Juneteenth is, it is a celebration of the official end of slavery. Unlike what they tell us in school, slavery did not end as soon as they signed the Emancipation Proclamation. They had to go farm to farm, plantation to plantation, tell the slaves to their face that they were free. And so it is a celebration of the last slave being told they were free. So all that new merch up for you, the links will be in there, but it is the Crime Scandal store in Design by Human site. And I appreciate your support either way, whether you rock the merch or not, but it is there for you if you choose to. 
Uh, once again, love seeing all the support from all over the world and let's jump into it. This week we are looking at a Narco-Korea cult. Now we've talked about cults before. Many cult leaders promote their messages that seem to be simple and seem to make sense. It's the exact opposite of what we're often provided with in everyday life. New members are often found when individuals crave answers to common problems and they're promised a simplified life by someone seems to have it all figured out. Often those with low self-esteem are more likely to be persuaded into a cult environment. People who are often surprised to learn that those who join cults for the most part are average everyday people. Many victims of cults are your neighbors, your friend from the gym, even a family member. They come from all kinds of backgrounds, zip codes, tax brackets, but research into cults in the past two decades has found an interesting pattern. Many people successfully recruited by cults are said to have low self-esteem. Cults generally do not look to recruit those with handicaps or clinical depression. However, people with low self-esteem are easier to break down and then build back up in an effort to teach them that the cult is the only supportive environment that they're looking for. Those that lack confidence and self-esteem are far more likely to fall for pyramid schemes that promise a better life or to jump into a religious community or group without any second guessing. They are more vulnerable and desperate and that's why they fall for life promises. Once people have been recruited by a cult, they're often love bombed. I've talked about this before. This phrase may seem odd, but it's commonly used to describe the way in which someone with low self-esteem is consistently flattered, complimented, and seduced in order to train their brain to associate the cult with love and acceptance. Now, I've been through an experience like this and love bombing doesn't work for me. It actually makes me more suspicious of you. So if someone overwhelms me with love and affection off the jump, I'm immediately suspicious of you and I shut down. So like I said, I've been through a cult experience and I actually got immediately suspicious. When someone feels unworthy of love, they are the first to fall for false affirmations associated with love bombing. Unfortunately, cults often reach intense, unhealthy, and inappropriate levels of closeness and love when they are preying on the weak. This often leads to sexual abuse, arranged plural marriages, child abuse, trafficking, and harboring using blackmail to get the things that they want. Dr. Stanley C. Kath, a psychoanalyst and psychology professor at Tufts University, I've actually been to one of his lectures, has treated more than 60 former cult members over the course of his career. From this unique firsthand experience, Kath has noted a interesting trend. Many people who join cults have experienced mainstream religions at some point in their life and rejected them. Perhaps this is surprising considering many cults tend to be extremely religious or they claim to be religious. But Dr. Kath asserts that this trend is a sign of something deeper. Many of those who join cults are intelligent people who come from sheltered environments. Growing up in such an environment often means that many have a history of failing to achieve intimacy or of blaming others for their failures and of consistently striving for perfectionist ideals. These characteristics make them prime targets for cult recruitment. When a cult is offering a unique religious movement that feels safe, but also a way to find their inner worth, 
they are likely to believe every word they're being told. Cults prove powerful because they are able to successfully isolate members from their former non-cult lives. One of the ways cult leaders achieve this is to convince their followers that they are superior to those that are not in the cult. This us versus them mentality ultimately leads to cult members isolating themselves socially from friends and family. They replace those relationships with new ones inside the cult. Where have we heard this before? The us versus them mentality. This is incredibly prevalent in American politics. Us versus them. My party versus your party. I'm not going to talk to you if you don't share the same political ideologies as me. That's why many people likened the MAGA movement to a cult. It caused people to cut off their family members all because they didn't share the same political ideologies. Cult leaders convince their victims to separate themselves from society, give up personal possessions, and sometimes large sums of money. They convince people to buy into whatever they're promoting. To do all of this, a cult leader must be a master manipulator, what people call Machiavellian. Ways in which leaders gain control over cult members vary, but some popular methods include public humiliation. New cult members may be love bombed shortly after their arrival, but once they are established members, cult leaders often maintain emotional control through various exercises meant to publicly humiliate a member. One such method involves someone sitting in a chair surrounded by other members, at which point they're required to admit their failures, base thoughts, and shortcomings. Self-incrimination. A favorite tactic of the infamous cult leader, James Jones, he's the uh, Jamestown, uh, Jonestown. Self-incrimination requires cult members to provide their leader with written statements detailing their individual fears and mistakes. The cult leader can use these statements to shame the members publicly. Brainwashing. Cult leaders are known to repeat various lies and distortions until members find it difficult to distinguish between reality and their life within the cult. Paranoia. To maintain a false sense of comfort, cults often rely on paranoia. Cult leaders convince their victims that a group, such as their families or the government, is out to get them but the cult can provide the only safety. Once a cult member comes to this conclusion that their families or their country cannot keep them safe, they begin to worship and put all of their faith in the cult leader. Jim Jones was especially skilled at this kind of mind control. He would encourage members to spy on each other and consistently spoke through other people. This is how he was able to get people to move to another country. Although it can be obvious to those around them, People in cults often don't realize that they have become part of one. Psychologist Dr. Margaret Fowler Singer spent most of her career studying the psychology of cults and brainwashing. She found that most people enter a cult willingly without realizing the power it is bound to have over them. Singer theorizes that this is partially because some people are more willing to see the perceived benefits than they are the danger. She also mentions that many people assume cults are only religious, though in truth, cults can be incredibly political, and they can also be lifestyle groups or even business affiliations. Cult victims often spend years overcoming the emotional damage incurred through their time spent in a cult. 
Psychologists who treat cult members routinely describe the long-term effects of being in a cult that, that it can have on the body. Dr. John G. Clark Jr. is a Harvard psychiatry professor and the co-founder of a nonprofit group which treats former members and their family. He specifically mentions the symptoms of temporal lobe epilepsy and that they are very similar to those seen or reported in cult conversions. Increased irritability, loss of libido, altered sexual interest, ritualism, compulsive attention to detail, mystical states, humorlessness, sobriety, heightened paranoia. While there are varying degrees of intensity when it comes to cults, they are emotionally damaging no matter what. Being brainwashed and controlled for a prolonged period would emotionally damage anyone, irregardless of if they are a former member or a current member. However, the length at which some cults go when they have true power over a person is concerning. Many people who have been brainwashed into living the life of a cult member have experienced horrific things, especially those who were members of a cult as a child and have no other choice because of their family. Some of the examples I've listed before, but they include things such as child abuse, sex abuse, trafficking, being made to do child porn, mass suicide, and forced marriage. Adolfo Costanzo was born in Miami, Florida to Delea Ora Gonzalez. She was a Cuban immigrant in 1962. She gave birth to Adolfo at the age of 15. Eventually, she went on to have three children by different fathers. Delia moved to San Juan, Puerto Rico after her first husband died and there she remarried. Constanzo was baptized Catholic and served as an altar boy, but also he accompanied his mother on trips to Haiti and learned voodoo. Constanzo's family returned to Miami in 1972 and his stepfather died soon after, leaving the family with very little money. As a teenager, he became an apprentice to a local bruja, which is kind of like a witch doctor. And he began to practice a religion called Palamayambo, which at times can involve animal sacrifice. Palo has its roots in the Congo Basin of Central Africa, from where large numbers of Congo slaves were brought to Cuba, where the religion was organized. Palo's liturgical language is a mixture of Spanish and Bantu languages known as Langua Bazula, Pablo Congo. The Palo belief system rests in two main pillars the venturation of the spirits, and the belief in natural or earth powers. All natural objects, and particularly sticks, are thought to be infused with powers, often linked to the power of spirits. A certain number of spirits, called Kimpagounda, or the singular Mapunga, inhabit the Nikis, sacred objects, also spelled Inikis, Iniqua, or Iniquas. Kimpagounda, well-known in name and deed, are oftentimes venerated spirits with anthropomorphic qualities. They are powerful entities, and they are ranked below the supreme creator, Zombie, making Palo henothonistic religion. The main practice of Palo focuses upon the religious receptacle or the altar, known as Nananga, El Cadaro, Nikisi, or La Pretanda. This is a consecrated vessel which serves as a microcosm. Each naganga is dedicated to a specific maponga, 
Oftentimes, this religious vessel is also believed to be inhabited by the spirit of the dead. Also, never the direct ancestor of the object's owner. So like, say if I have the vessel, the Maponga, it cannot be inhabited like by like my grandmother. It, can, it has to be someone who is not a direct ancestor of me. Also referred as Nafamba, who acts as a guide for all religious activities which are performed with the Nanaganga. Various divination methods are used in Paolo. Cholomongos use shells of various materials, often coconut shells. A more traditional method, Vinimunsa, is a form of envisioning or scrying using a sanctified animal horn capped with a mirror. Denominations Denominations are further broken down into temple homes, known as manusos, that are headed by experiences, elder priests or priestesses. There is no central authority figure in Palo. So that's just kind of a breakdown of Pale Mayombo versus Santaria. This is an Afro-Cubano religion. So, so that you don't get confused with something like Santaria or traditional voodoo. Delia remarried a new stepfather uh, and he was involved in both the religion and the drug dealing with him. Constanzo and his mother were arrested numerous times for theft, vandalism, and shoplifting. He did graduate from high school, but was quickly expelled from community college. His mother believed that he had psychic abilities for supposedly predicting the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan in 1981. As a teenager, he befriended a Haitian Palo Mayombo priest who taught him the skills necessary to be a drug dealer and a con artist, training him for a career of profiting from evil. Adolfo visited Mexico City in 1983, supporting himself as a tarot card reader. There, he recruited two younger men, Martin Quantana Rodriguez and Omar Chuy Orea Ochea, to be his servants, lovers, and disciples. Constanzo returned to Miami shortly thereafter, but he moved to Mexico City in mid-1984. At first glance, the most peculiar aspect of Constanzo's new career was the appeal he seemed to have for ranking law enforcement officers. At least four members of the Federal Judicial Police joined Constanzo's cult in Mexico City. One of them, Salvador Garcia, was a commander in charge of narcotics investigations. Another, Florentino Ventura, retired from the Federales to lead the Mexican branch of Interpol. In a country where bribery permeates all levels of law enforcement and federal officers sometimes serve as the triggermen for drug cartels, corruption is not unusual, but the devotion of Constanzo's followers ran far deeper than cash. In or out of uniform, they worshipped Adolfo as a minor god, their living conduit into the spearing world. In 1986, Florentino Ventura introduced Adolfo Constanzo to the drug-dealing Calzado family, then one of Mexico's dominant cartels. Constanzo won the hard-nosed dealers over with his charm and mumbo-jumbo, as people like to call it here in the States, but there, palameyombo. Profiting immensely from his contacts with the gang, by early 1987, he was able to pay 60,000 cash for a 
60000 for a condo must be nice. Buying himself a fleet of luxury cars that included an $80,000 Mercedes. When not working magic for the Calzadas and other clients, Adolfo staged scams of his own. Once posing as a DEA agent to rip off a coke dealer in Guadalajara, selling the stash through his police contacts for a cool 100000 At some point in his odyssey from juvenile psychic to high society bruja, Constanzo began to feed his nanganja with the offering of human sacrifices. Now, to note, most people do not use actual humans in sacrifices in any kind of palamayombo. It is not normal. No final tally for his victims is available, but 23 ritual murders are actually documented. And Mexican authorities point to a rash of unsolved mutilation slayings throughout Mexico City and elsewhere, suggesting that Constanzo's known victims may only represent the tip of the actual iceberg. In any case, his willingness to torture and kill complete strangers, along with close friends, duly impressed the ruthless drug dealers who remained his biggest clients. In the course of a year's association, Constanzo came to believe that his magical powers were responsible for the Calzada's family's continued success. In April 1987, he demanded a full partnership with the syndicate and was immediately turned down. On the surface, Constanzo seemed to take rejection in stride, but his mind was plotting revenge. On the 30th of April, Guillermo Calzada and six members of his household vanished under mysterious circumstances. They were reported missing on May 1st, police noting melted candles and other evidence of religious practices at Calzada's office. Six more days elapsed before officers began fishing mutilated remains from the Zampago River. Seven corpses were discovered in course of a week all bearing marks of a sadistic torture, fingers, toes, and ears removed, hearts and sex organs missing, part of the spine ripped from one of the bodies. Two others were missing their brains. The vanished parts, as it turned out, had gone to Costanzo's cauldron of blood, building up his strength for greater things yet to come. In July of 1987, Salvador Garcia introduced Constanzo to another drug family. This one led by Elio and Ovidio Hernandez. At the end of that month, Matamoros, Aldolfo Costanzo had also met 22-year-old Sarah Aldrate, a Mexican national with a resident alien status in the United States, where she went to college. Adolfo charmed Sarah with his line of patter, noting with arch significance that her birthday, September 6, was the same as his mother's. Sarah was dating a drug dealer in the United States, but she soon wound up in Costanzo's bed. Costanzo used the, used the full tilt press on her, emerging her in as the godmother or head witch of his cult. Of course, all of this cost money, and Costanzo's journals, which were recovered after his death, documented 31 regular customers, some paying as much as 4500 for a single ceremony. Adolfo Constanzo established a menu for sacrificials, and with, with roosters going for $6 a head, goats for $30, boa constrictors for 50 
Zebras for 1100. Where are you getting zebras from? Lions 3100. Where are you getting lions from? True to the teachings of his Florida mentor, Constanzo went out of his way to charm wealthy drug dealers, helping them schedule shipments and meeting on basis of his predictions. For a price, he offered magic that would make dealers hit their invisible targets and beat the police. And also, it would cause them to be able to hit their bullets or hit their targets with their bullets. It was all nonsense, of course, but smugglers drawn from Mexican peasant stock with backgrounds in Brujia were strongly inclined to believe him. According to Constanzo's ledgers, one dealer in Mexico City paid him $40,000 for magical services rendered over three years. At those rates, the customers demanded a show. And Constanzo recognized the folly of disappointing men who carried submachine guns in their armor-plated limos. Strong medicine required first-rate ingredients, and Adolfo was rolling by mid-1985 when he and three of his disciples raided a Mexico City graveyard for human bones and started his own Nangana, the traditional cauldron of blood employed by practitioners of Palo Mayombo. The rituals and air of mystery surrounding Andolfo Constanzo were powerful enough to lure a cross-section of Mexican society, with his clique of disciples, including physicians, real estate speculators, fashion models, and several drag queens. Constanzo's rituals became more and more elaborate and more and more sadistic after he moved his headquarters to a plot of desert called Rancho Santa Elena, 20 miles from Matamoros. There, on May 28, 1988, a drug dealer named Hector de la Fuente and farmer Moises Castillo were executed by gunfire, but their sacrifice ended up being a disappointment to Constanzo. Back in Mexico City, he, direct, he directed his cronies to dismember a drag queen, Ramon Esquivel, and dump the remains on a public street corner. The luck was holding, and Ildolfo Costanzo narrowly escaped when police raided a drug house in June 1988, seizing numerous items of paraphernalia in the city's largest ever shipment of cocaine. This is over on the American side of the border in Texas. In August 12th, Alviado Hernandez and his two-year-old son were kidnapped by rival narcotics dealers. The family turned to Adolfo for help. That night, another human sacrifice was staged on Toronto Santa Elena, and the hostages were released unharmed, Adolfo claiming full credit. His star was rising, and Constanzo barely noticed when Florentino Ventura committed suicide in Mexico City, taking his wife and a friend with him. In November 1988, Constanzo sacrificed a disciple by the name of Jorge Gomez and accused him of snorting cocaine in direct violation of his ban on drug use. A month later, his ties with the Hernandez family were cemented with the initiation of Avadio as a full-fledged cultist, complete with ritual bloodletting and prayers to the Nangana. Human sacrifice also can have its practical side, as when competing smuggler Escuela Luna tortured to death at Rancho Santa Elena on February 14, 1989. Two other dealers, Ruben Garza and Ernesto Diaz, wandered into the ceremony uninvited and promptly wound up on the menu. Conversely, Adolfo sometimes demanded a sacrifice on the spur of the moment without reason. When he called for fresh, I, ugh, gross, I hate it being called fresh meat, they're people. 
On February 25th, Ovadio Hernandez gladly joined the hunting party and picked off his own cousin. Oh, how awful. On March 13, 1989, Adolfo Constanzo sacrificed yet another victim at the ranch, gravely disappointed when his prey did not scream and beg for mercy. Disgruntled, he ordered an Anglo for the next ritual, and his minions fanned out their noses to the ground, abducting 21-year-old Mark Kilroy outside a Metamoro saloon. The sacrifice went well enough, followed two weeks later by the butchery of Sarah Eldreda's old boyfriend, Gilberto Sosa. But Kilroy's disappearance marked the beginning of the end. A popular pre-med student from Texas, Mark Kilroy was not some peasant, drag queen, or small-time pusher who could disappear without a trace or an investigation. With family members and Texas politicians churning up the heat, the search for Kilroy rapidly assumed the trappings of an international incident. But would it be Constanzo's disciples that signed his death warrant? By late March 1989, Mexican authorities were busy with one of their periodic anti-drug campaigns, erecting roadblocks and sweeping the border districts for unwary smugglers. On April 1st, Victor Sociada, an ex-cop turned gangster, was sacrificed at the ranch, and the spirit message Constanzo received was optimistic enough for his troops to move a half ton of marijuana across the border. Then, the magic started to unravel. On April 9th, returning from Brownsville, a cultist by the name of Serafin Hernandez drove past a police roadblock without stopping, ignoring the cars, and they were sent in hot pursuit after him. Hernandez believed that the <laughs> Hernandez believed the Palomayombo line about invisibility. He seemed surprised that the officers actually saw and trailed him all the way to Metamoros. <laughs> That's hilarious. Even so, the smuggler was arrogant and invited the police to shoot him since he honestly believed that the bullets would just bounce right off. They arrested him instead, along with cult member David Martinez, and drove the pair back to Rancho Santa Elena, where a preliminary search turned up marijuana and firearms. <gasps> Who would have guessed? Disciples Elio Hernandez and Sergio Martinez stumbled into the net while police were on hand, and all four prisoners were interrogated through the evening, revealing their tales of black magic, torture, and human sacrifice with pride. The next morning, police returned to the ranch in force, discovering the melodious shed where Adolfo kept his nanganja, brimming with blood, spiders, scorpions, a dead black cat, a tortoise shell, bones, deer antlers, and a brain, a human brain. Captive cult members directed searchers to Constanzo's private cemetery, and an excavation began revealing 15 mutilated corpses. By April 16th, in addition to Mark Kilroy and other victims already named, the body count included two renegade federal narcotics officers, Joaquin Manzo and Miguel Garcia, along with three men who were never identified. The hunt for Adolfo Costanzo was on. The police raided his luxury home at Adespan outside Mexico City on April 17th and discovered stockpiles of gay porn and a hidden ritual chamber. The discoveries at Rancho Santa Elena made international headlines and sightings of Costanzo were parted 
were reported in Chicago, but in fact, he had already been back to Mexico City. He was hiding out in a small apartment with Sarah Aladre and other disciples. On May 2nd, thinking to save himself, save herself, Sarah tossed a note out the window. It read, please call the judicial police and tell them that in this bidding, in this building are the people they are looking for. Give them the address and tell them we're on the fourth floor. Tell them that a woman is being held hostage. I am begging because this is what I want the most. I want to talk or they're going to kill me. A passerby found the note and kept it to himself because he thought it was a joke. On May 6, neighbors finally called the police to complain about loud, vulgar argument in the apartment, accompanied by gunshots. As patrolmen arrived on the scene, Adolfo Constanzo opened fire with an Uzi, touching off a 45-minute gun battle in which, miraculously, only one policeman was wounded. When Adolfo Constanzo realized that escape was impossible, he handed his weapon to cultist Alvaro de Leon Valdez, a professional hitman who went by the nickname El Dubby, with bizarre new orders. He told him, kill me, kill me and Martin. He told him, I can't do it. I'm just not going to kill you. I cannot kill you, Bruja. So Adolfo hit him in the face. And he threatened that if he did not kill him, everything would go twice as bad for him in hell. And then he hugged him. And somehow Martin found the strength to shoot them. Adolfo and Quintana were dead. When the police stormed the apartment, they arrested El Dubi and Sarah Eldrete. In the aftermath of the raid, 14 cultists were indicted on various charges, including multiple murders, weapons and narcotics violations, conspiracy, and obstruction of justice. In August 1990, L.W. was convicted of killing Constanzo and Quintana, drawing a 30-year prison term. Cultists Juan Fragosa and Jorge Montas were both convicted in the Ramon Esquival murder and sentenced to 35 years each. Omar Araya, convicted in the same case, Unfortunately, died of AIDS before he could be sentenced. Sarah Aldretti was convicted of Constanzo's murder, but sentenced to a six-year term on a conviction of criminal association. She was nearing the end of the sentence in 1994 when her long-delayed trial on multiple other murder charges brought a 60-year prison term. Police in Mexico are still uncertain of Adolfo Constanzo's body count. Some officers are trying to clear every single ritualistic murder on the books by posthumously blaming Constanzo. Where have we seen that before? Here in the U.S. where they stuck over 200 bodies on a man with a borderline mentality. Been there, done that. So that is the case of the Narcocorea cult. That is one for the books. So join us next time when we see a dispute between neighbors go next level, nuclear revenge, if you will. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.